Uh, our next speaker is Dr. George Shaw. Uh, George and I started working together in 1985 uh, when he moved to Birmingham from the NIH where he was in Bob Gallo's lab at the time HIV was discovered there. Uh, George was born and raised in Ohio, went to the Ohio State University. I still don't know why people say it that way, but they do, I guess. Um, got an MD-PhD there and then went to University of Michigan where he had internal medicine training and then went on to Gallo's lab, came back to UAB and simultaneously was an assistant professor there and also uh, was completing his oncology clinical fellowship. Um, George has been involved in HIV pathogenesis from the get-go and in recent years, like a lot of us, has been segueing or straddling into hepatitis C. And today he's sort of a perfect person to talk to us about the similarities and very few differences actually between uh, HIV and hepatitis C biologically. George. Thanks, Mike, so much. So I think all of us find one of the most gratifying things about HIV care is that one can think kind of very logically about the pathogenesis of the disease and strategically how to, uh, how to approach its management, somewhat different than many aspects of oncology where you're kind of treating uh, something you don't quite understand um, with, with blunt tools. And so I want to draw uh, upon that analogy and, and point out many of the kind of the emerging concepts with HCV biology that, that you will, I find, you know, I think strikingly familiar to you in terms of, uh, of the structure of the virus, the way the virus replicates, although there are some differences. Um, and, uh, and I want to amplify on that. So I have to... Okay, um, I want to first mention the uh, genetic diversity of HCV. And it's a challenge both with regard to drug treatment and, uh, and vaccine development ultimately. Although with drug treatment, ironically, um, I think we're going to find that uh, resistance development, um, uh, at, at least as we can see now, is not as great a problem as one might have imagined. Um, here, this, these are phylogenetic trees here, and the distance between the tip of any one of these two branches, um, that distance um, is, uh, corresponds to a, 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 a genetic distance in nucleotide sequence, and so this distance from there to there is 0.05 or 5%. So um, we're all familiar with the HIV-1 pandemic globally, where any one uh, uh, virus in one uh, um, say, uh, clade B might differ from clade A or clade D or clade C by 30 or 40 percent. And that's represented there. This is clade B, uh, where uh, the envelope gene might differ from in, in any one strain from another by 25 percent, usually less, 20 percent. Here's a single HIV-infected person. Here's the global pandemic of influenza A, the, the hemagglutin protein, and here's HCV. And so you can see just from this map the um, challenge of genetic diversity with HCV, and these are the different genotypes, one through six. So that's kind of the scope of the problem. Um, another scope of the problem is number of people infected, 35 million today with HIV, 170 million plus or minus uh, infected with HCV. 
something we're all very familiar with is the natural history of HIV-1 infection and the very reproducible appearance of viral markers. We're all very familiar with, uh, with the pros and cons of the different diagnostic tests and how to identify patients even in the earliest stages of infection. And so here on the x-axis is days from trans of uh, HIV infection from the moment of transmission, day zero. Here's viral load, um, typical course. There's generally an eclipse period of about 10 days. It could be seven, could be 21, um, generally in that range. But once virus is detectable in the plasma, there's an exponential rise and then a very regular appearance of, in terms of the diagnostic tests. First viral RNA, antigen, recombinant ELISA, then Western blot plus minus, indeterminate, and then diagnostic. And that's something that uh, we all depend on. With HCV, we have something similar, but uh, the, the nuances are different. Um, this is a, a summary of data from about 70 uh, acutely infected people by uh, Mike Bush um, and uh, Glenn. And um, the period of uh, ramp up um, uh, from first detectable virus in the plasma using increasingly sensitive tests to peak viremia is just about, it's about the same rate. It's extremely fast. Just a few days to a week, you reach peak viremia. But this eclipse period is a bit more vague in HCV. Although I think most of the data would suggest that it is closer to HIV than not. So generally people are exposed to HCV and become viremic within a couple weeks, if not sooner. Another difference is, though, that antibody seroconversion typically occurs much later following the ramp up, a couple months later, compared to HIV, where the antibody, the same sensitivity test, will be positive just at the peak right there. So that's a difference between HIV, where antibody positivity is almost invariable at this point. HCV, it is almost never positive until at least a month, if not two months after. So you have to keep that window in mind. Also, the natural history in terms of viral RNA kinetics and, and, and plateaus are different. HCV can be much more irregular than this, but for the first several months it, or, or longer, it tends to be high. And then, as you well know, patients segregate out. Some spontaneously clear completely. Some will nearly clear and then trickle along and then come back. Others will stay high. And I'll come back to that. So those are two important differences. And I'm going to show you later in the talk, we can analyze sequences here from HCV and learn about the virus transmission event here. And that could be important for vaccine development. It could be important for thinking about transmission of drug resistance. I'll show you that. So I want to show you a couple more comparisons, uh, HIV versus HCV all familiar with um, the genomic organization of HIV-1, GAG, pull, AMP, et cetera, with all the additional genes. You're familiar with the life cycle. We're so familiar by now uh, with, with all the steps from virus entry, the fusion process, nuclear import, and of course, uh, all of these steps are targeted by antivirals right now. HCV is, but, but of course, different. Um, both HIV-1 and HCV are exactly the same length, 9.6 kilobases. They're both single-strand RNA viruses, indistinguishable in that way. The morphology is a bit different, but they're both single-strand plus-strand RNA viruses. 
Um, the uh, HCV genome organization, though, is different. It's got core genes that encode core proteins, envelope genes, E1, E2, that encode envelope proteins, and then this whole sequence here encode the, uh, the NS, or non-structural genes. So they encode, for example, the viral protease, the target of bisepravir and telepravir. They encode NS5B, which is the polymerase. So that's the new uh, Gilead drug, 7977. NS5A, etc. So there is a, a single, uh, unlike HIV-1, open reading frame that ex extends from the 5 to the 3 prime end. A huge polyprotein is made. And that polyprotein is cleaved by the viral protease, NS3. And so you can imagine if you give a protease inhibitor, it prevents the cleavage of this polyprotein and everything just stops. Uh, similarly, with the, with the polymerase, if you inhibit the polymerase, you inhibit the, the uh, polymerization of the new HCV strands. And so things stop. And then you start thinking about HIV versus HCV. You start adding inhibitors of protease and polymerase, and NS5A, and you can see how multidrug therapy could be quite effective. Okay. Uh, another difference, just to, for, to keep in mind, is, is virus entry. With HIV-1, we're so you know, well aware now of CD4 as the primary uh, receptor, and then the co-receptors, CCR5 and CXCR4. This simple process, seemingly, HIV binding to CD4, inducing a change in the envelope, then binding to CCR5, that's well known. The, the entry of hepatitis C virus is much less clear. We know factors that are involved and are essential, but exactly how this virus gets from the plasma into the hepatocyte is, is much less clear. But it involves binding to, uh, uh, to, to, to different receptors on the hepatocyte. In this case, SRB1, CD81, Cloudin, and Occludin. Details aren't important. I think more that's important is the complexity. And, and ultimately, these may be targets of neutralizing antibodies and so forth. Another difference between HCV and HIV is that uh, replication occurs entirely in the cytoplasm. Viral sequences never get to the nucleus. And of course, therefore, you don't have integrated provirus. You don't have a latent reservoir. Um, you don't, <clears throat> all, of the, all of the hepatitis C virus uh, genes, gene products, are restricted to the cytoplasm. So here you have virus entering, fusion taking place in an endosome. Um, each virion carries a plus strand RNA that's, again, 9.6 kilobases long. The first thing that RNA has to do is to be translated and translated into all of these proteins that I showed you on the previous slide makes the core protein, the envelope proteins, all the replication machinery. And then the RNA and the replication machinery go to something called a membranous web. And this membranous web is where viral replication occurs, where um, you know, viral genome is copied and new virion uh, RNA is made. And then that viral RNA is encapsidated in core and envelope, and uh, virions come out the other side. The remarkable thing is that, uh, to me still, is that in chronically infected people, you have this huge liver here. People estimate 20, as much as 20% of the hepatocytes have this going on in them. 
So 20% of the cells in this extremely large organ here have this process going on every day. And you come in with, with, uh, with antiviral therapy now, with the therapies that you well know. Uh, with or without interferon, the combination therapies are even better. And those therapies, for example, are attacking the protease NS3 here. They might be attacking the polymerase NS5. And they are so potent that they're, they're, they're abrogating the function of those proteins. And then you treat for 12 weeks, or whatever the duration is, and you take the patient who has 20% of his liver with this going on, and they're cured. It's just the most remarkable. All of this is gone. And we still don't understand how that works exactly. Um, and that's really one of the challenges for, for understanding uh, uh, treatment. But that's, in, a, in essence, what you're doing with your therapy. And, and we need to understand that more, because you in the therapy and so forth. So um, a challenge. HIV-1 and HCV exist in nature as genetically complex quasi-species. This sag right there is the same one who's up here in the audience. This was Mike's uh, first paper uh, in my lab. Uh, it was the quasi-species uh, variation of HIV-1 in humans, and that was back in 1988. And now we revisit that 20 or 30 years later, and we're doing the same thing with HCV. Um, it, in fact, I'll show Mike's newest paper on HCV. Um, in a newly infected patient, the time between exposure to HIV or HCV and the first detection of RNA in the blood, the eclipse phase is generally about 10 to 14 days, during which virus undergoes amplification, diversification, immune evasion. Virus-host interactions are not directly observable during this eclipse phase because of the sampling limitations in humans. Yet these are the events that we would hope to understand in order to elucidate mechanisms of virus transmission and facilitate rational vaccine design and also to contemplate transmission of drug-resistant variants. So I'm going to now switch for five or so minutes and tell you about how one, what one can do now to study the transmission event and how that we might be thinking about that in terms of resistance development and so forth. So with HIV-1, and I'll start with HIV-1, we created just a conceptual model. This happens to be, let's say this is the rectal mucosa or the vaginal mucosa. This is semen out here with an inoculum, in this case, of HIV-1. Genetically very diverse. We all know about the diversity of HIV-1. And, and, and there's a sexual exposure. First of all, sexual exposure generally doesn't lead to productive infection. Generally, you don't get the virus. You, you're lucky. But, you know, Uncommonly, one in a hundred, one in a thousand times, you become productively infected. And we tried to conceptualize that on a piece of paper. And this is how we drew it. We imagined that viruses would be trying to get across, but they'd be defective. We imagined viruses that would get across, but they wouldn't grow well. There, there are not. Their reproductive ratio would be close to one, and they just would peter out. And then we conceptualized that, that some virus, in those who, people who do become infected, explosively replicates. And so this is what we tried to, to, to consider. Um, in, this, in the literature now, people talk about single genome amplification or single genome sequencing. Um, single genome sequencing is nothing more or less than taking a patient, taking an aliquot of plasma, extracting viral RNA out of the plasma. And that's true for either HIV-1 or HCV. If you want to do a diagnostic test for viral load, you do this by a TACMAN or something. If you want to characterize the genetic content of that patient's plasma, 
you do something different. It's and, and what we would advocate is single genome sequ sequencing. And it's, it's based on single genome amplification. So you take viral RNA, you make cDNA or copy it into DNA, then you endpoint dilute it, and then you amplify it by PCR. And so you basically get a genetic uh, DNA fingerprint of what was in the original sample. Simple as that. And so I'm going to show you a little bit of data just for fun that, 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 that shows you how we think about HIV and HCV transmission. So imagine the patient, you draw the blood, you extract viral RNA from the plasma, you make DNA out of it, and then you amplify it and you sequence it. And so here's the patient over here. The patient becomes infected with HIV-1 right there. He has this explosive amplification of virus in the plasma, 10 to the 7th viral RNA per ml. And we sample his blood right there. We do that sequencing that I'm telling you about. And now I'm showing you the data on this slide. So this, this vertical line there and these numbers represent, the numbers represent full-length envelope genes of HIV-1. And so all the numbers that lie on this vertical line are are envelope sequences that are identical to themselves. And that little tick mark right there shows that that sequence differs from that sequence by, say, one nucleotide. This one by two nucleotides. And this is what's called a highlighter plot over here. This is portraying the envelope gene, 2,600 base pairs, linearly from the 5' prime to the 3' prime end. And then all these sequences are identical because they don't have any tick marks. And these sequences differ by one or two nucleotides. And so the point of this is that the sequencing that was done on this patient's sample here is portrayed here, and we could infer from this that the consensus of these sequences here is an unambiguous sequence that must have infected the patient right there. And so this is was kind of a conceptual leap. It's, it seems pretty simple, but people never took this approach to studying genetic diversity of HIV. And from this one slide, we could figure out what was going on in a patient two weeks before um, he uh, showed evidence of infection. And this was his transmitted virus. If a patient was infected by two viruses, a second patient now, sampled at the same time, we generated this set of sequences. All of these are almost identical to themselves. And they're very different from these, but each of those is identical almost to themselves. It's shown here on this line here. And so the point of this slide in the, in the inference here is that this person was infected at this moment in time over here by two variants. And they each diversified genetically very slightly but distinctly. And so we could read these sequences and read these sequences and infer that the patient was infected by two viruses at that moment in time. Well, if you can do that, that's a very powerful tool. And so what we wanted to ask, and we're going to ask this first with HIV-1 and then with HCV, um, does the epidemiological risk of virus acquisition correlate with numbers of viruses that are transmitted? We're aware that um, heterosexuals have a lower risk of HIV infection than MSM, and MSM have a lower risk than IDUs. Well, what does one find when one uh, uses that single genome sequencing approach to quantify the number of viruses each person was infected by? We want to do that because we want to ask, you know, like if we're making a vaccine, in this case for HIV, high is the hurdle? What does the vaccine have to prevent? And so here's a summary, essentially a meta-analysis of a number of studies 
This group here are heterosexuals. There's 175 individuals who became infected, and they became infected with a median of one virion, and the range was one to six. MSM, the median was ironically still one, but the range was higher, one to 10. And injection drug users, total of 28 subjects only were studied. The median number of transmitted viruses was two, and the range was one to 16. We thought this number would probably be much higher. This two would be much higher, but it wasn't. And the reason probably is that the drug users, yes, they're using dirty needles, but they're not that dirty. They are washing them, but not getting them quite clean. They're just, they're, or, and or that the amount of infectious virus in the plasma of the person they're sharing with, it's just still not a terribly efficient processing. It's more efficient, and we'll see the data with HCV in a minute, than, than some of the others. But so this told us what the, the bar, if you will, for the new HIV vaccines people are trying to make. The bar is not that high. You've only got to prevent the acquisition of one or two virions, and you've got a protective vaccine. Okay, well, so what I've just told you is that this is a schematic model of HIV-1 transmission where you have semen out here, you have, in this case, vagina and cervix, you have a whole bunch of events going on for days. We were able to isolate virus from the plasma here and infer the exact molecular event that occurred at this time point in terms of the identity of the virus. Now, well, let's, can we do that for HCV and why would that be important? Well, here the background is, is analogous. Molecular features of HCV transmission are unclear, but could be important for studies of transmission, drug treatment, pathogenesis, natural history. And so we wanted to ask, can the genetic bottleneck to HCV transmission be defined precisely? Can we understand what's happening in these MSMs that, that John Ward was telling you about? And these um, uh, injection drug users and the uncommon heterosexual uh, transmission. Can we understand that? using this technique? Can actual transmitted genomes be identified? Um, can full-length genomes be identified? The reason for that will be important. And can this inform rational strategies for treatment and prevention? Okay, so the ex experimental strategy, in this case we're going to study 20 acutely infected human source donor plasmas, uh, source plasma donors. These are, are humans, these are people here in Atlanta, they have a big operation going on, where they are, they donate their, they they sell their plasma twice a week. So there are three or four centers around here in Atlanta, and every morning at 7 o'clock, people are lining up to sell their plasma. And that goes into um, the, uh, that happens across the United States and all the big metropolitan areas. And that's how we make IVIG for use in the hospitals. All IVIG in the United States and globally comes from that source. All albumin comes from that source that's not recombinant. Used to be the colloid factors came from that source. So most patients, most people who are donating plasma, um, uh, some are doing it just simply altruistically and they don't need the money, but most people need the money. Most people are answering the questionnaires accurately and honestly that they don't participate in risk behaviors. They don't, but they are lower socioeconomic. And so with a very large denominator of people donating plasma, selling plasma, the uncommon one will occasionally become acutely infected with either HBV, HCV, HIV, or something. In this case, we had 20 acutely infected hepatitis C patients. Um, 
And so single genome sequencing, we're going to amplify this part of the genome that I told you about the genome already, and now I'm going to show you the data. We're going to take plasma samples from the ramp up there, and we're going to infer what's happening back here. And so here are 16 of the patients. So here are 16 normal human source plasma donors. They are, at the x-axis is in weeks. The y-axis is in viral load in, in log base 10. So just take this one patient, one, two, one. This patient has been donating plasma twice a week for two years, every week. He is HIV and HCV and HBV uninfected. That plasma goes into the to the, to the pool. But all of these people, they're, they're donating twice a week, but their samples are put in the freezer and they're embargoed, a rolling embargo, so that they always have two months of samples in the freezers. So if they eventually do become positive for HIV or any of the transmissible agents, they can throw the past two months of samples away and it doesn't get into the blood supply, even though they're inactivating it anyhow. But um, so here's a patient that is donating, it's negative, and then all of a sudden viral RNA, HCV RNA is 10 to the 6th, and it has a typical pattern. And that's true for all 16 of these patients. And where we've circled the dots is where we've sequenced. Okay, this is a, a phylogenetic tree. Again, this is the genetic tree of a chronically infected person. So I showed you at the very beginning of the talk that patients have a lot of genetic diversity. So if you take the tip this is one patient, plasma viral RNA. The tip of any one of these branches goes clear back here to the tip of this one, back to this one here. That genetic distance is, according to that scale right there, you know, a couple percent. So that's genetic diversity that's typical in an HCV-infected person. Here is the genetic diversity in our first study subject, 10051. So we're sampling the patient here. You're a pronoun. Uh, analyzing these trees, this is the, the phylogenetic tree. All these sequences, these are half genome sequences, are identical to themselves because they're lying on that vertical line. And each of those differs from these by one nucleotide, that length right there. And you can see that in this highlighter plot. So we've sampled this patient here. We've shown you all these sequences. And you can look at those and say, well, this person was infected by a single virus genome somewhere back there. Has to be. No other possible explanation. Here's a patient in the next slide, um, the same one. If what I'm telling you is true, then if we go backwards in time, we should find less diversity. If we go forward in time, because virus sequences that the virus is replicating, it's got to be diversifying. And so all of these sequences, hundreds of sequences here, they all coalesce back to a single virus right there. So one, we got it, we got and, and sampled at the same time points, pretty much, we found a very different tree. But it's when you then stop to look at it, it's not too terribly different. All of these sequences are almost identical to themselves, but very different from these sequences, which are identical to themselves, and these identical to themselves. So this individual, this represents a single transmitted founder virus from right there. This represents a second one. This represents a third one. So this individual was simply infected by three viruses. And that logic goes on. This infected person was infected by nine viruses. We then saw 
and I think John might be interested in this in particular, this pattern, this was an acutely infected human, and all of a sudden it looked differently. We didn't see single rakes, but we saw many little patterns, little rakes, if you will, of nearly identical sequences. It turns out that this came from, almost certainly from an acute to acute transmission of hep C. This is exactly what you would find if an individual became acutely infected with a, with a single virus. It started to diversify over the first couple weeks. And as it was diversifying, it transmitted a bunch of those in it, when it's especially infectious, just like HIV-1 is especially infectious in acute infection, to someone else. And so we could explain all of the sequences on here by, by the fact that this individual had become productively infected with a large volume plasma transmission from an acutely infected person. Suggests acute to acute transmission occurs. This is another acutely infected person. This guy's infected for years and years and years, and I'm sorry, was donating blood for years and years, and then all of a sudden his first sample was positive, and we looked at it. And we saw this pattern. We couldn't understand that until we realized that all of these genomes carried two mutations to Baseprevir. And so what happened here was that uh, a, a chronically infected person was treated with uh, either Baseprevir or Teleprevir. We don't know which. And when his virus went down and then started to come back up, he transmitted to this individual here. This individual here was infected with uh, a large number of viruses, all of which were drug resistant. So drug-resistant transmission certainly occurs. So this is the summary slide of what I've just told you. We studied um, 20 people. We were interested in understanding how many viruses typically confer a productive infection in HCV-infected people. We don't know what their risks are. They probably have a, a varied risks. The answer was between 1 and greater than 33 with a median of 4. So that's what we are typically seeing in an unselected, except in a group of, of blood donors in the United States. And so that brought us to, uh, and, la and allowed us really to develop a model of HCV transmission that's not too dissimilar than HIV-1. The donor has a large inoculum of genetically diverse virus. There's a venous or a mucosal barrier, depending upon what the mechanism of transmission is. There is a, a stringent population bottleneck. Uh, one or few viruses take hold. All the others are just uh, lost along the way. The median number of transmitted founder viruses that confer productive infection um, is around four. The range was one to 33. Because we could because in these patients, we could, I'm not sure what, because in these patients, what I've just told you is that we could um, identify the exact nucleotide sequence of that virus there, and we could identify the exact nucleotide sequences of all these viruses 14 to 28 to, to, to a couple months later. We could actually measure the rate of, um, of variation of the viral genome, and for the first time, actually infer the uh, the mutation rate of the HCV RNA polymerase in vivo. 
that actually turns out to be very important for people like uh, Alan Perlson, who model drug resistance development and, and, and make calculations as to what is the likely frequency of uh, pre-existing drug mutations in uninfected humans and those who become infected and, and the rate at which they develop. And so we actually did that in, in two papers. And the details are important. I'll come back to them later. But um, we could calculate for the first time the error rate of um, hepatitis C. And it turns out to be about tenfold lower than what was previously in the literature. So that, that was of interest. So kind of to wrap up, um, I, I, I bring this back to the life cycle of hepatitis C virus and the implications for drug development and resistance. I've emphasized that the life cycle is quite different, HCV versus HIV. The interesting thing to contemplate is the um, life, the, the half-life, if you will, the lifespan of these intracellular replication complexes and the impact that your therapy is having um, when you abrogate key steps in this process. And that's actually something that, that uh, the drug companies, we and other people, are studying right now. When you think about how long do you have to treat, in some ways, you're asking a molecular question, how long do these different components of the psych replication cycle persist in hepatocytes? And that's a question you can ask clinically with, a, with, with clinical trials, designing clinical trials that will, say, abrogate one or more of these proteins and treat for a certain duration, and then qualify that based on the immunogenetics of your patient, and hypothesize about the immune system. But in essence, you can either take the patient and treat it for different periods of time, or you can take the patient, treat, and follow the half-life of viral sequences. And in HIV, we did that. Um, in HCV, that's kind of the future, I think, is to, is to combine the clinical trials with the mathematical analysis of, of viral sequences. And that's, that's what I'm trying to illustrate here. The other thing to, to, to just keep in mind here, this is that same uh, figure, except redrawn uh, to consider the intervention points of, and the selected inhibitor classes. So here you have virus. You're binding to the, to the surface uh, receptors. And there are a series of uh, of really pretty good antibodies that are coming along that can, that can block that step quite well. So I was at a meeting in Venice a couple weeks ago, um, big HCV meeting, and David Baltimore's group was presenting a passive immunotherapy trial, thinking about how do you give antibodies that can block this step in post-transplant patients. So that was kind of a, one of the new things on the horizon, because the antibodies, the monoclonals, are getting very, very good. Um, you have fusion inhibitors. You, here's your protease inhibitor inactivating the, the replication uh, uh, by means of, of abrogating uh, the uh, uh, protease digestion of the polyprotein there. You have um, NS5A and NS5B inhibitors um, affecting the replication complex and the membranous web. And then you have really uh, viron release factors that are targets of, of, of drug development. But, but in PLOS pathogens, if you're interested, you can just kind of Google those. And um, I have two conclusion slides. 
Um, plasma HCV um, from acutely infected subjects showed one or more discrete low diversity sequence lineages. From that, we could infer the number of transmitted viruses and the identity of those viruses, median of four. Nearly 20% of our transmission events appeared to result from acute to acute infection. I didn't point that out. I didn't have time to point that out too much in the talk. But if you recall with HIV-1 in Africa, they, the speculation is, the evidence would suggest that 25, 30, 40 percent of the African epidemic is driven by acute to acute to acute to acute transmission because in acute HIV infection, virus loads are highest, neutralizing antibodies are absent, and there may be other factors that enhance transmission. We have circumstantial evidence that the same may be happening in the United States, and we just don't quite understand it. Maybe with the gay men, we're not sure. Um, Identification of transmitted founder viruses was validated in a chimpanzee model that I showed you that hopefully is convincing. Um, we could measure the uh, error rate of the polymerase, very important for understanding drug resistance development. And finally, we're going after all of the genotypes, one through seven. And these are our collaborators um, uh, from UAB, um, now Penn, UAB, Mike, um, Duke, and Lano. So I'll stop there.